0: Good morning. I kicked another Church of England habit this morning, and I'm so excited. <laughs> I, I walked up to the pulpit without getting a nod from the rector or the lead pastor. That's the first. And the second is I'm in the pulpit without a Beretta on my head. But that's okay. What I want to do today is uh, give my thoughts on Revelation 7-9, and and prior to doing so, I'll I'll give the standard uh, Protestant public service announcement, which comes from 2 Timothy 3.16. So you're welcome to read along or not, but 2 Timothy 3.16 states, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction, and righteousness. All scripture, including Revelation, which for some strange reason so I find is seldom ever mentioned in the church. Don't know why, perhaps uh, the language appears hidden and mysterious, a bit too symbolic for those of us who are not from the liturgical traditions. Or perhaps it was written during a time where uh, Domitian just did not take well to Christians. Uh, Revelation, and again, I'll be taking from Revelation 7-9, but prior to doing that, of course, I will reiterate, uh, taking from Revelation 22, 18-19, and uh, and I quote, For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And 19 And if any man shall take away from the words of this book, this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life, out of the holy city, and from all things which are written in this book. Accordingly, I am not trying to add, nor am I trying to subtract. Adding is setting dates. Subtracting is shunning or denying. So my take on Revelation 9, which I find quite interesting, particularly in the North American church, and it reads, And this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. And the emphasis and what I want to discuss is all nations and kindreds. (laughs) and people, and tongues. I was looking at some statistics from the Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA, and you might be wondering, what is this guy doing? The CIA, an interesting place. Uh, And I was looking at Christian populations in the world, particularly around 2020. We have about 525 million from Africa, about 376 million from Asia about 566 million from Europe. Latin America, about 531 million. Uh, North America, 267 million. So I looked and presuming for the sake of argument, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, let's just presume that everyone who calls himself a Christian is. That is the premises, that I must work. We must presume, because we know it's not so, that everyone who calls themselves a Christian is. And if we look at the number of folks who call themselves Christians in the world, we have about 0.83 billion in Europe and North America. We're not going to get into what Europe and North America tends to look like, but we have about 0.833 billion in North America. We have about 1.4 billion in the rest of the world. So if we look at the rest of the world, it's almost two to one. So assuming, presuming for the sake of argument that all Christians or folks who deem themselves the same will get into heaven, we're about two to one of folks in heaven looking like Asians, Africans, and folks in Oceania. Interesting concept. It doesn't shock me. I hope it doesn't shock you. But I'm thinking, and when I was in my first interaction with Sixth Street Mennonite in Philadelphia, that's about what the congregation looked like. It's about two to one. Then I went to Hurst Street in Harrisburg. Well, it's primarily an African-American congregation. But if you look at BMA, the Biblical Mennonite Allowance, that's certainly not the way it looks. My play daughter, and some of you know I have a a daughter whose husband came from a horse and buggy congregation. Their congregation looks more like Switzerland or northern Northern Germany. So I'm thinking, for those of us within the world who consider ourselves Christians, and those of us, and I would hope it's all of us, who hope to go on to glory, what will it be like to be somewhere where it's two to one, and folks look like? predominantly Africans, and Asians, and folks from Oceania. Are we good with that? If we look at the 10 top countries in the world where Christians are in the majority, we have the US, Brazil, Russia, Mexico, Nigeria, the Philippines, China, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, imagine that, Italy, and Ethiopia. Let's take out the United States, Russia really isn't Europe. And let's take out Italy. We have South America, Mexico, Africa, and Asia, and Ethiopia. That's the other country. Are we good with that? I was thinking, and this is a talk I actually wanted to give the BMA years ago, so unfortunately, you're my captive audience. But, When I was at BIA, I'm thinking about that. Are folks comfortable with that? Because you don't want to be where you're not going to be comfortable, but if you want to be in heaven, I would hope you are comfortable. I plan to be comfortable. For me, it's like being in Manhattan, or perhaps Cleveland, or Chicago. Nations, because it's not about race. It really isn't, because the concept of race didn't exist until the 18th century. So let's just take that off the chart. It is about nations. Nation, of course, the word becomes from the Latin. If we go from Latin to Spanish, Portuguese, and Italian, it deals with birth, where you're born. Most Christians today are not born in North America or Europe. It deals with kindreds, which more or less are tribes. So for me, it would be the Pollard tribe and the Teller tribe coming together. Or if you're in a rural part of the world, let's say you're in Senegal, the Casamance in Senegal, the tribe would be the area which is is your village. I once had friends who are in the Philippines who are in the Barangay. And yes, they're all related. That's the tribe. People would be their ethnic group, which is much more salient than race. Ethnicity counts in most parts of the world and your tongue, which for me, on most days, is English. Although I will admit, when I'm with Amazon, it can be Spanish from time to time. So if we look at all Christians, and I'm looking at all Christians because I'm talking about me, and we narrow that group down to Bible-believing Christians, because that's where it really starts to get interesting. Then we narrow that down further to Anabaptists, because that's a very small subset of the faith, are we, because I'm technically, I'm a member here, but deep down inside, we really know I'm Church of England. So if we're looking at Anabaptists, are we, and it's not the royal we, it really is we, comfortable in the two-to-one dynamics that heaven might present to us? And you don't have to answer the question, and I promise not to do like I do in... Misvise Wednesday group and call on people. You don't have to answer the question. But heaven is not a six month mission trip. Heaven is not a 10 year mission trip. It's the rest of eternity. Notice I said the rest of eternity. Are we good with that? Are we good, you and I, with being somewhere where? Contrary to having been raised in the United States, where folks look like folks in northern Virginia, outside of Arlington and Alexandria, that's what the U.S. looks like. African Americans are roughly about 13% of the U.S. population. Asians, less than that. Latinos, somewhere in the middle. Heaven flips that. I'm excited. Are you excited? I hope so, because you don't want to be where you hope to be. You want to know about it before you get there. So, how do we deal with that? And I'll leave out sword and trumpet because we both know that I'm still recovering from that experience. But are we interacting? And when I say we, we are the people, we are the faith, members of the community. Am I, are you interacting with folks in our homes? And then the homes of others who don't look like us. Are we going to church and meaningfully interacting with people who don't look like us? Are we going to schools with folks who don't look like us and may not share certain quote-unquote tribal characteristics? How about work? How about other places? You know, some of us own businesses. It's a great thing. I've been to two businesses of two members in the congregation. I felt five. You know, one with, one with at the, the creamery. Folks working there look like me. Okay, I'm good. <laughs> I went to the, the other market in Culpeper. Noticed the folks, spent some time coming in and out of the store. Noticed the folks behind the counter. I'm good. Are all of you good with that? So at the end of the day, and what I hope to impart, because I really thought about this, particularly when I moved to Harrisburg, I really thought about this. And, and, I, and I thought from the standpoint of some of those poor folk uh, in BMA, some of those brothers, my brothers and sisters on the Anabaptist side of the faith, they're really going to have an eye-opening experience when they get there really eye-opening. So are we ready, we, you and I, are we ready to spend the rest of eternity with those, and really with those of other nations, other kindreds, other people, and other languages? It's a question that you not only must answer, it's a question that all of us ultimately will answer. Thank you for your time. Good morning, everybody.
1: On one of uh, Paul's missionary journeys, they stopped in the city of Ephesus, and a church was planted there, and the city of Ephesus was about 200,000 people, um, which, just trying to put it into today's, uh, to give us a, a picture of this, if you take Warrington and multiply it times 19, you'd get the city of Ephesus. So at that point, it was a very influential and a large city, so there was a church planted there. And Paul either left or sent Timothy back to help get the church established and started. And he wrote a couple of letters to Timothy, giving him instructions on how to to guide the church and what to teach the church. And I want to continue today the series that we've been doing of looking at what does it mean to be a godly man and a godly woman uh, whose lives have been changed by the gospel. And my question for you is, if you could put yourself in Paul's shoes, or just even as you think about it now... If you are to write a letter to the church in Ephesus, so it's a big city, a church uh, probably with a lot of backgrounds, kind of like Dennis talked about, young believers, and if you as either a lady or a man were going to write to other ladies or other men and say, here are some things that as a follower of Christ are very important to you, I'm curious what you would list as things of utmost importance. Or what are the things that you would say, hey, here are some pitfalls to avoid? If you were to write the letter to young believers who are starting out following Christ, um, I'm curious what you would put as utmost importance for other men or other women. And I'm not going to, well, I would love to take time to just talk about it. This could be a sermon in and of itself, and I wouldn't have to say much. But Um, just be thinking about that. I um, invite your attention to 1 Timothy 3, and we are going to work a little backwards to the text today. So we're going to jump right in the middle of the book. 1 Timothy 3, verse 14 and 15, um, Paul says why he writes the letter. And so for the introduction, we need to have that in mind. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So he's writing, he wants people to know how do you conduct yourself in the household or in the family of God? And um, I love the description of the church here. It's the family of God. It's the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Uh, there's a lot that we could talk about there. But then let's just work backwards. So in chapter 3, right above this, he's talking about the role of a deacon. And so as I think about our service tonight, I think it's good to keep this in mind. This is the church of the living God who will speak and who will guide us as we, as we go through that, the deacon process. Right above that, in chapter 3, he talks to the elders. And then in chapter 2, he talks to men and women, which is where where we're going to go with our text today. Uh, Just a little bit more introduction. One of the primary issues that the church was facing is false teachers. So chapter 1 is largely um, outlining for Timothy, here's the charge, guard against false teaching. And then we have this section that is, how do we live in the household of God? And he's going to start addressing men and women. So I want to look at 1 Timothy. We'll, we'll talk to the men first and then the women. We'll consider 1 Peter, which does that in reverse, the women and then the men. So we'll, we'll look at two passages. And so men, you get to, we get to do the start and the end. And the ladies have the middle section there. Um, for context, let's start from verse 1 uh, because it really is important for us to understand the chapter. First of all, then. I urge that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So let me just stop here and consider this a little bit before we get into the specific instructions for men and women, which begins in verse eight. So when he's addressing how do how do we live as a, a new family of God whose lives have been changed, and the first thing he says of utmost importance is, I want you to pray. That prayer is at the heart of what what we do um, when our lives have been changed and we're we're born again. So first of all, I urge that. And then he lists four different kinds of prayer. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time describing them. But I think the point is that God wants us to pray all different kinds of prayers. And who are we to pray for? At the end of the verse, he says, for all people. So as when we gather, I think we do well as a church to spend time praying, whether it's services here or when we're together, you know, not as formally to pray. And we're called to pray for all people. Then he goes on to point out that this is for kings and people in high positions. And I don't want us to hear that it's narrowed down to that. I think for them, their mind went to Nero. And I think he's actually expanding it to that. If I was in their shoes, I would say, you want me to pray for all people? Even Nero? I think that's a bit what the instruction is intended. It's not just to pray for kings. We do well to pray for um, for kings. Um, so we pray for all men, to pray for the leaders. And what are we to ask for or why? God tells us in verse 2 that as his followers that we can lead a peaceful and a quiet life. So a life where we're free to, to obey him and to honor him. So that is... Um, We are to ask God for that. So we're to ask that we can lead a a godly life. And clearly we are to pray for salvation. He goes on to say, to make that very clear in in verse 4, who desires all people to be saved. Um, And as we are able to live a life that reflects God, it points people to Christ. And that is one of the ways the gospel is is shed, is spread, not shed. And then he goes on to talk about um, the theology and in verses 5 through 7. And again, we could and maybe should spend a lot of time there, but I want to move on and focus in on what he picks up in verse 8. So this is the background. The church is to pray. We're to pray for all men. God's heart is that everybody comes to know him and walk with him. So what does he say to the men? If you were a man writing about one of the primary issues that men face, he says this, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling, and some translations would say without doubting. So you'll notice in in both of the passages I'm going to read for us men, it is very short and it is very direct. And I feel like there's just a lot there that I need to hear. Um, so for men, his his desire is that men in every place should pray. And so one of the things we can take from this is that. Prayer is not um, confined to a certain place. This is for all men everywhere. And yes, he is addressing the corporate gathering, but this is all of life, that he wants men um, to pray. So men, uh, this is a challenge for me too. Um, When we get together and pray, how willing are we to lead out in prayer? And whether that's uh, publicly or in a group, God does want uh, men to pray. And again, I hope that you know as we go through this, for men and for women, it's not that these are not issues for women, and it's not that God does not want women to pray, but he's addressing primarily men, men and women here. But I desire that in every place the men should pray. And as I consider this and just look back on the last week, two weeks, month of my life, I want to confess that this is very challenging for me. It is very easy for me to be busy and to jump into life And to just, you know, I need to do this, do that, do all of the other things. And then where does prayer actually rank in my priorities? And I can can say what I want about it, but I do think that what I pray and when I pray does reveal what I really believe about God at the end of the day. And it is an area that I want to grow in. So God's desire is that men everywhere would pray. How How are we to pray? So the direction here is that we are to lift up holy hands. So do you think that this is addressing the posture in which we are to pray? Is this a literal thing? And I would say yes, but probably far more than that as well, um, that it's, it's not just limited to, to the posture. So when I think about lifting up holy hands, one of the things that I think about with hands is they're often associated with work. Do you ever think about our hands are associated with work? Um, and Cora, I had to think of Simon when I was thinking about this. When you shook Simon Byler's hand, there was no doubt that he had spent his life working as a farmer. It just, his hands showed that. Um, and so I think, when I think about lifting up hands for men and for me, I think about the work that we do. And that this is, I would say the primary work that God calls men to do is to pray and to lift up our hands in prayer. Um, so that's one of the reasons that I think that he, he mentions our hands. And the other thing is, do you think about how much you express with your hands? And I, me in particular, I have a hard time. I can't keep my hands still. But our hands just, they express things. You, you, you can help get across what you're trying to say by what you do with your hands. And so when God asks us to lift up holy hands, um, it's not real natural for those of us men who want to have it all together and be strong, but I think God is wanting us to just open up our hands, saying, I, I need you, I don't have this together, and to just hold our hands up very open to God and even, even potentially more as a little child would when they want to be picked up. You know, I think about um, little children when they run to you and they want your attention, they just, you know, pick me up, would you hold me? And so God, I think, is asking us in humility to lift our hands um, to Him in prayer, both you know, literally but also symbolically, it's the attitude, the attitude of our heart. So He says that our hands are to be holy without anger or quarreling. And so when I think about having holy hands, it's it's having God cleanse our heart. It's not that we don't sin but that there's, there's no unconfessed sin. There's no sin that has not been brought to God. Um, a couple of verses related to this, Psalm 68, uh, 18 and 19. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly God has listened. He has attended the voice of my prayer. So if I'm praying to God but not willing to acknowledge sin, God doesn't listen. And then also thinking of Psalm 32, and I'm not going to read all of this. But I want to point out that blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And then jumping down to verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. And so if God is going to cover our sins, we can't try to hide them. But when we're willing to show them to God, He covers them. So I think that's what is is meant uh, when it talks about holy hands. Wayne had mentioned, I think, last week, Uh, the idea of confession as a body. And so uh, for us men and for for ladies too, I think that there's a place to confess in the body. There's a place to confess one-on-one or in smaller groups. And then the Bible tells us in James that as we do that and pray for each other, we can be healed from those sins. And so holy hands involves confessing to God and to others and allowing God to heal us. But then the instruction goes on here to do this without anger. So guys, do you think that anger is a primary issue for men, if we're honest? I have to say that it is. How we handle our anger, I believe, is a primary issue for men. And so we are called to pray without anger. I um, just want to think a little bit about anger. Is it, is it wrong to feel angry? Thank the Lord, no. It is not wrong to feel angry. Um, the Bible talks about God's anger about 300 times. In the New Testament, Jesus was angry at the, the dullness of people's hearts. So it's not wrong to feel anger, um, but it is wrong to stay angry and to not resolve that anger. Um, I want us just to consider Ephesians 4. It says 1 Timothy 2, but it's actually Ephesians 4. A few verses on anger. Starting in verse 26 Be angry or in your anger, and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. So all of us have things where we get upset, and God's invitation to us and His command to us is to bring those things to Him and allow Him to to change that anger. Um, We can't help that we feel angry, but anger is not meant to stay in our heart. In fact, He tells us we are to resolve it every day, to not let the sun go down on your wrath. Um, And then at the end of the chapter, he does say, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Um, So one thing to consider, when, when a Christian becomes angry, God really only gives us two choices of what to do with that. We can forgive and overlook or we can confront the thing that has made us angry. And either way, we're called to forgive. And anger is just a... It's just an alarm bell that something is wrong. So I don't know, maybe you feel angry listening to me Say you only have two options of what to do with anger. Um, But I I invite you to pray about that and consider it. But God does say we either need to overlook or confront. And even if we confront, that also involves forgiving in the long run. Okay, then the the other warning for us men is without quarreling. um, Just one translation we call this doubting, which I think is very clear. James tells us, If you ask God and you're doubting, don't think you're going to receive anything. Uh, But the word here does have more of the idea of quarreling or an argument or a dispute. And again, um, men, if we're honest, are we prone to a good argument every now and then? Maybe, Maybe we have a little bit of stubbornness in us. But God says that when we come to prayer, let's do it without anger or a quarreling or disputing attitude. Mark 11 tells me that if I am praying... And remember that I haven't forgiven somebody, I should stop praying and forgive. And if I'm praying or worshiping and I know that somebody has ought against me, I'm to leave my gift on the altar and go be reconciled. Um, Philippians 2 says do everything with, without grumbling or arguing. So somehow our relationship to others impacts our prayer in a direct and significant way. Here are the verses out of Philippians 2. So for men, again, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. And the sentence goes on for ladies. Likewise also that women, women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So he's addressed men, and then he's saying, here's a correlating um, instruction for ladies, that women, does it say that women should not adorn themselves? Do you catch this? Women are to adorn themselves, but in a certain way, and not in another way. So the women are to adorn themselves with respectable apparel, and it just means appropriate or fitting, um, fitting apparel, that women should dress in a fitting way. Then, uh, is the word, then the word modesty comes up, and before you assume what that means, I'd like to read another verse that also has the word modesty, and I'd like to have that in mind as we flip back to this passage. So this is in Hebrews 12, and it's in verse 28 and 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and that... And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for God is a consuming fire. And I, The batteries are dead, so I can't point, but I'll walk over here. This word for reverence here is modest. It's the exact same word. So it's saying when we relate to God, we are to come to him with acceptable worship, with, with reverence for him. Um, and that, that gives the idea of what modesty means. It's appropriate. It's, it's reverent. Um, so I think sometimes we can put modesty in a smaller box than it ought to be in. Um, that it means far more than that. It, means re- it, it really is a reverence to who God is and how that works out. So having that in mind, women should adorn themselves with modesty or reverence and then self-control. Now, here's the, Then he gets into the list of things not to do. So not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. So there's a list of things there, and you know we don't know what all was happening in the church that was being addressed. Pretty clearly, there was probably some type of, some level of competition or of status going on of how, how ladies looked um, to, to fit in or to impress others. So those things are being specifically addressed. And then again, he says, don't do this, but instead, do what is proper." or becoming, or building up for a woman who confesses to be godly. And then in the end, he sums it all up with good works. So with good works. If I was to, to give just a few um, principles of modesty, and again, this is where Scripture is good, because if I would have picked, I would not have picked to talk about ladies' wardrobes this morning. But in reading about this, a few things that I thought were helpful is just some principles. Does does what I'm wearing and how I'm applying this, does it complement character? Does it draw attention to myself or to God? Does it emphasize who I am or how I look? And so I think, you know, when we apply this, uh, let's be careful to not apply it too narrowly, because if we define it that, you know, modesty is just X, you can actually dress very immodestly inside of that definition. So churches have to bring definition, but let's allow God to bring the principle uh, to our heart as we live that out. Um, so again, it's, it's a respectful thing. It's an attitude thing and self-control um, overall. All right, and now let's keep going with what he says to the ladies here. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. So one of the things that he's gonna go on and address is just is how ladies relate Uh, in their role that God has called them to um, in submission. And so this is a tough verse. Let women learn quietly with all submissiveness. When we think about the word quietly, again, as we define this, I think it's really important to look at what we just just read. So I'm going to pop up verse 2 here. So we are to pray for kings that we lead a peaceful and quiet life. And so I just, as we, as we think about living this out, understand that this quiet and this quiet up there are the same. And so it does; it has, uh, has the idea of just a, a settledness and a contentedness inside of our hearts is how we are to live. And so for ladies, it is to learn with that contentedness and quietness in submissiveness, and the word for submission is just, it has the idea of ranking in the military. It it has nothing to do with value, but just who is called to fill what role, and is there clarity in the roles in the church? So let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. One of the things that I found interesting, and I didn't research this a lot to know how, how thorough this is, but one of the commentators was pointing out that in Jewish culture, Ladies were not given the opportunity to learn or to attend school. And so, for the church to say that ladies had an opportunity to learn equally is actually elevating and uh, elevating ladies and not putting down. In our culture, there tends to be a reaction. So, I thought that was interesting and something, something worth considering. Then, in verse uh, 12, he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And again, just thinking, thinking through this, later on in, in Timothy, 1 Timothy 5, he describes the role of elders as to teach and to lead and to have authority. And so he's saying that women are not called to that position uh, in the church. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Not going to spend a lot of time here. We talked some about this uh, several uh, sermons ago when I talked about the role of men and that God has asked men to lead. Then we come to a very tough verse. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self control. What is God saying here? she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. One of the things we can know for sure is God is not saying that salvation comes through childbearing. That is very clear throughout all of Scripture. Salvation comes through Christ alone. Um, I will just, I don't want to spend a ton of time here. I'll offer what I think is the most helpful understanding of this verse, and we can certainly debate that and talk more about it. But It says that she will be saved through childbearing. And I think it's important to note that it's not by childbearing. It is through that. And if you think about the curse, God made the childbirth painful. And so he's saying that for women who are following God, that God will save them through this painful process um, if they continue in faith and love and holiness. And the one reason um, that I would submit that to you is in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 where it's talking about our works being burned up with fire. Listen to what he says. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So does that make sense? God is saying he will get us through it. It's not that we're saved by it. Um, That's, again, there's probably a lot more to talk about there, um, but I think that 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 would give my understanding of what he's saying there. Because... Uh, he is clear for ladies to continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. And in in the context of 1 Timothy, you had ladies who were wanting to leave their families and um, take other kind of leadership roles, liberated from their families. And so God is saying, What I designed is good um, if you continue in it. I kind of feel like I should stop there and have a discussion, but we'll keep going. Okay, and let's go over to 1 Peter 3, and again, continue with ladies, and then we'll come back to the men. And this is specifically speaking to married men and married women, but it, I think, again, the principles apply to all of us. Um, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So wives are called to, uh, to submit to their husbands, even those that are not believers. Then he goes on um, with some words that sound very similar to Timothy. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So again, the idea is you are to be adorned But don't fall for all of the stuff that really doesn't last and don't matter. It doesn't matter in the long run. So the list of warnings is very similar to Timothy's. uh, But what we're asked to put on is the hidden person, the person that can't be seen. And it is the heart of a gentle and a quiet spirit. And the word gentle there is actually the word for meek, which if you think about how Jesus described himself. He says in Matthew 11, I'm meek and lowly. Come to me and you'll find rest for your soul. And I think the invitation for ladies is if, we, if you find your identity, your character in Christ, there's a meekness and a, um, there's rest for your soul there that can't be found in the external things. So it's the um, imperishable beauty of a gentle and then again quiet spirit. And I don't think this means personality it talks about internally the condition of her heart. Then it goes on in verse 5, For this is how the holy woman who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Why do all these passages for ladies have such hard verses in them? But I, what stands out to me in the end of this is what he says at the end, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. And I just ask you, when you talk to a lady who is not a follower of Christ, what is probably the most frightening thing you can talk about? Submitting to the leadership of a man and just coming under leadership of, of another person or of a man. And so I think that God is recognizing this does not come naturally. We're not to fear it. Um, we're actually to call to walk in it with God's power, and He rewards it uh, when you do. So um, I'm going to do the least feminine thing here and pop up a chart of what God's direction is for the ladies uh, to do this and not that. And I know that it should have flowers and you know, just be presented you know, one at a time. I, I don't know. Hopefully you can bear with me here and just read the chart. So in summary, let your adorning not be with braided hair, with gold, pearls, costly attire, or external. And again, I think we're called to apply this, but I think it's a lot more than this. How, what, what, what's applied in our culture today? But then on the other side, let your adorning be respectable apparel, modesty, self-control, proper for women professing godliness, good works, the hidden person of the heart, a gentle spirit, and a quiet spirit. So that is what God... God calls ladies to. Um, Now, if you were reading the verses and irritated that I didn't mention a couple things, I'm actually kind of glad. If anybody noticed what I skipped across, I want to circle back to that, that God says that that this is where the adorning is to come from. And I want to highlight that he says it is imperishable beauty, that for ladies who live in this, it is imperishable. So if you just go with the world's definition of beauty, how long does it last? It, it's very temporal, right? It does not last long. But God says that this kind of beauty is imperishable. Um, this is eternal. This does not does not corrupt. Um, it doesn't get old. Um, thinking about the other definitions of beauty, it'll take your money, but it will not last, and it does not bring um, satisfaction. So really it is... We're looking at temporal versus eternal, and then I like to notice the phrase, which in God's sight is very precious. Is that not awesome? Which in God's sight is very precious. When I think about you know ladies and how God has wired you um, as ladies to be, just a natural question: Am I am I beautiful? Am I attractive? How do I fit in? And I think about my daughter sitting here in the front row, and how much um, she just wants attention sometimes when when, I was younger, and we would be talking about things, and and if I'm not paying enough attention, the little face comes up, and just constantly, just like, just look at me, I need your attention, what what are you thinking, dad, What, what are you thinking, and probably almost all little girls are like this, how often when you're with little girls is it, look at me, I want to show you this, watch me, and God knows that you're wired that way, and that a lot of what he asks you to do doesn't feel natural, but his eyes are watching you. And he says, I notice. And in God's sight, it is very, very beautiful for women who are willing to define themselves by the internal and the character that God outlines, that God watches. And I, I love that he says that it's very precious. And the word for precious is it's just, it, it's super costly. In God's eyes, it is super costly and the most precious thing. So I want to encourage you ladies um, to continue to live that out and know that God is watching. Um, One practical thing that I think about is just even the act of veiling your hair. God tells us in Corinthians that a hair is a lady's glory. And so when you choose to veil that glory, God notices and he's watching, and he says, that's, that's beautiful in my sight. Um, so thank you, ladies, for living that out. I um, just want to encourage you that you are seen and God is watching. All right, then he comes back to us men, and he says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So it's striking to me that for men, the primary concern, again, is our prayers, that, that God cares about how we live with our wives. He cares about our wives, but he also is saying that it, it impacts our prayers. So likewise, husbands, we are called to live in an understanding way. So when God created ladies, uh, he created a complicated delicate creature that is very different than men. And if I would ask the men here who all says that they understand ladies, I don't think I'd see any hands go up. And even for men that have been married for a very long time, if I asked you, how, how much do you really, really understand your wife, we would be very slow to raise our hand. Um, it's not easy to understand women. But God says that as men, we are called to live with our wives in an understanding way or according to knowledge that we are to spend our lifetime trying to figure this out, trying to get to know them, and to, to live with them in an understanding way. So I, I guess I take courage in this, that I am not to give up in this process and keep right on going of trying to understand, uh, understand my wife. When I think about living with Nicole in an understanding way, and I wish she was here to, today when I'm talking about this, but some of the things, some of the examples that I'm not proud of is just how different Nicole and I are and how hard it is for me to pick up on living with her in an understanding way. So, for example, we, we first got married, and Nicole would tell me that, like, we're planning our week. You know, how many evenings do you want to be at home this week? Like, when are we going to be home? And I would be like, why do we need to be home? Like, what, okay, what if we're going to be home, what are we doing? And so if we don't have something that needs to be done, like, of course we'd want to be with other people or be doing something else. And she'd be like when are we gonna stay home? Like, When are we just gonna have nothing going on in an evening? And it was foreign to me. And anyway, it took me a very long time to come to terms with, you know what, Nicole needs to be home a few evenings, and actually I do too, even if I don't have a list of things to do. Um, But it took me an embarrassingly long time to understand that that was a need and not a preference for Nicole. Other things that we run into, When it comes to work, I am very project-oriented, and Nicole is very schedule-oriented. So the way I like to end my day is when I've gotten everything done, including the last thing, then I come home from work, and that can be 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock, 6.15. Like, I just want to get my work done. And Nicole is much more schedule-oriented. Like, you work until this time, and then you stop, and you pick it up tomorrow. Um, we have a lot of chances to try to work that out in an understanding way. So um, husbands don't, uh, don't stop trying to work out things in an understanding way. Another painful example is uh, Nicole loves to make plans far in advance, and I love to keep my options open. So when it comes to booking travel, Nicole feels stress if we haven't booked and I actually feel some stress if we book too far in advance because we don't know what's going to happen and like, it, it's going to work out somewhere. So just yesterday we were going to book some travel and I was like, she's like, I really feel like we should book it. I'm like, I don't have the capacity to study for the sermon and book travel. We didn't book travel and uh, this morning learned that our travel is going to cost us more than it would have if we had booked it yesterday. So anyway... What am I saying? Uh, Just that God gives us many chances to try to live in an understanding way. And we're to show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. The woman is weaker in some capacity. Again, not less valuable, but weaker. And we are to honor that and honor those differences as husbands. But what really uh, gets my attention is why are we to do this? Because if we don't, our prayers are hindered. And the word for hindered literally... Is, just has the idea of being cut off. And I don't know of anything much worse than having our prayers be cut off. Um, so men, as we relate to, to our wives, let's do so in an understanding and an honoring way that our prayers um, don't be hindered. So just wrapping this up, um, thinking about, about the passage out of 1 Timothy and out of 1 Peter, as I think about it, God has hardwired us men to work, to get things done, to just accomplish things. But he tells us the way that we actually do that is through prayer and not always our own effort. Think about women, that God has wired women to be beautiful, to be seen, and to live in relationships. And what it really comes down to is am I going to go after the things my way or God's way? So for us men... Am I willing to to change and to make prayer be a central part of my life and how I work? For women, am I willing to trust God, to submit to Him, and to allow His definition of beauty and recognition, and to follow Him in a trusting way that He will take care of me? As I consider this, it really is a heart issue of, am I going to trust God, or am I going to try to go my own way? Um, and what seems natural to me. And I want to I want to respond and live in a way um, that is godly and is trusting to God. Trusting God. Um, I think Mark Batterson and some other people talk about, as followers of Christ, are we willing to, to live for the audience of one? That it's not about a lot of other people or anybody else, but an audience of one, meaning, meaning who Jesus is and what he says. And so are we willing to, to live for that? I want to thank you for sticking with me as we uh, covered verses that I wouldn't necessarily pick to cover, but felt led to today. Um, Thanks for considering these things. Um, I want to invite you just to stand and have a word of prayer. Up.